0: fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
2: Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Episode 8. Welcome back to another episode. This week I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with Professor Amber Wiley. Uh, Amber and I go back many, many years. Uh, When I was an undergraduate student at UVA, she was a graduate student. Amber is currently an assistant professor at Rutgers University in the art history department. One of the many ways that Amber has made my life better is by broadening my horizons. She is a world traveler and has been generous to regale me with so many stories of her various travels over the years, and I'm really just thrilled to have her on the podcast. There were a number of times when this conversation totally blew my mind. I did my best to kind of edit out a lot of the fangirling and surprise and laughter that we had, but we're old friends, so... You get to be a fly on the wall on some of that. There are a number of links in the show notes that cover many of the places that we discuss in the episode. So be sure to check those out so that you have some more visuals about what we're talking about. Some of the articles are a couple years old. So if any of the links are outdated, you can just use Google to find more of the info. To share a little bit more about how awesome Amber is, let me get into her bio from her Rutgers University page. And the link is in the show notes as well if you'd like to read more. So Amber Wiley specializes in architecture, urbanism, and African American cultural studies. Her research interests are centered on the social aspects of design and how it affects urban communities, architecture as a literal and figurative structure of power. She focuses on the ways local and national bodies have made the claim for the dominating narrative and collective memory of cities and examines how preservation and public history contribute to the creation and maintenance of the identity and sense of place in a city. Her teaching approach mirrors her dedication to critical thinking about the human condition in the built environment and the creation, evolution, and maintenance of cities, neighborhoods, and communities. She strives to actively engage in discourses that are significant across academic fields, and her theoretical and analytical background was founded in art and architectural history methodology, as well as the interdisciplinary methods of American studies. She combines analysis of aesthetics and cultural influences on community building with questions about the meaning of culture, authority, and agency. So as you can hear, she is a rock star. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to her about the many ways that preservation impact and contribute. To the sense of identity and the sense of place. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Professor Amber Wiley. A lot of my interest in preservation and a lot of, I know your interest in preservation is how preservation deals with location and place setting and how that impacts identity. And so I remember being so excited when we met at UVA because I was like, oh, my gosh, there's another black woman who's amazing and is doing all these things. And then when I just learned more of your pedigree and that you're an artist and all these different things that you've done, just I stand. So (laughs) I'd love to start there and kind of your thoughts on how preservation impacts identity.
3: Yeah, it's funny because so I did listen to some of your earlier episodes, and I also listened to the one with the UVA ladies. And I also spoke with Melissa about this too. It seems like our interest in the field really stems from personal experience, something that happened when we were young, right? And when I think about my interest in preservation, it really is rooted in storytelling from my elders right my aunt on my my dad's side so my paternal aunt jan was always telling me about oklahoma history and did you know this and did you know that and this used to be i mean that that's the story this used to be xyz and this was the place where this happened you know and it's like the east side of Oklahoma City, like, this was the black Mecca. And I'm like, okay, well, it's kind of run down now. It's struggling. Right. You know, and then we would go to different, you know, cultural and heritage sites in Oklahoma, which we, we do have cultural and heritage there. And I, I just was kind of fascinated. but I never wanted to be a historian. I just, I like the stories. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather on my mom's side, D.C., and, you know, you heard that he lived in Leeds Park and it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. This was the place and this, this, this. And so they're telling me all this history and I just can't see it. Right. It's like invisible to me. And to a certain extent, because of the places that they were talking about in the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s, they were suffering from disinvestment mm-hmm. from the cities mm-hmm. and in Oklahoma. And so it was really hard for me to understand. and. Part of that interest, really, in preservation and identity is is deeply personal and, you know, helps me patch together origin stories for myself. But I also know if I have these patches in the story, if there seems to be a disconnect, it's the same for other people. And for the people who know the places of value in their communities I want to help them keep them, you know, so that they don't get bulldozed over. It's like they never were there. And I think that like the physical remnants are really powerful. And I think that's really important to to have something to point to. I went to architecture school. Actually, I went to Yale, but it was a, it was a liberal arts degree. So it was a BA in architecture. But I went because I wanted to be an architect. I like shiny things. I like beautiful things. I like stealing glass almost as much as the next person. And preservation was the piece that allowed me to really connect with the types of stories that my family members were telling and try to excavate them, as it were. So that's how I ended up going down that road. I never wanted to be a historian. <laughs> I wanted to be a designer.
2: So then how have you found being more on the historian side now? Have you found that transition? And what pulled you more to that side?
3: Yeah, I definitely, I I definitely like the stories, but I also was frustrated with the lack of connection I felt with my education, the stories that they didn't tell Mm -hmm. and, you know, what happens after the fact, like, okay, it's so funny. We have all these precedent studies and, you know, key buildings that you're supposed to learn. And it's like, okay, so they, they were designed with specific intent in mind and how do they work? (laughs) Right. <laughs> and I right. you know, was like, we never heard that. And I was like, well, who used it? Okay, well, this clearly I wouldn't have been using this building. And if I was, I'd be going in the back door. You know, like, so I right. was just thinking about that. Like, if I were to place myself into this building, like, what would my position be? And as much as I love design, I was like, mm-hmm. none of this speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how can I create a conversation around the built environment that does?
2: Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I've always been fascinating with existing buildings, mainly because like seeing historic structures and even existing buildings and seeing a town that used to be, and I would find myself wondering, what was it when it was vibrant? What did it look like? What did it look like as it started declining? What caused it to start declining? And then what would it take to actually bring it back? And so it's always been kind of a, almost seeing a building on a sliding scale and like almost Looking at it and like fast forwarding and rewinding the, the time lapse of it to see what it was, what it could be, just to have that sense of time, I guess. But it's always when you're talking about the the black sites in Oklahoma and the sites that this used to be, and that phrase of this used to be X, or this used to be Y, that happens in cities all over the country, particularly in spaces that used to be dominated and by black people and the culture there and the disinvestment that happens it's fascinating and unfortunate and heartbreaking and just frustrating because it seems like it's so systemic around the country thinking about sites that have just been disinvested as opposed to purposely destroyed like Tulsa Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. I've always been curious about how how do I say this so your elders that had the narrative that used to be the Mecca that used to be a place that we had pride in to mm-hmm. what people our generation and younger are seeing as oh that's a, that's a place i don't want to go that's ghetto that's run down they don't care about us no one upkeeps it so it's like the levels of expectation in terms of mm-hmm. what a place is like and what spaces we are meant to occupy is something mm-hmm. that i find
3: fascinating it is and i actually when you're talking about that it takes me back to a society of architectural historians conference that was in Austin texas mm-hmm. And I was on a tour that was led by Tara Dudley and Andrea Roberts. And they were like, we're going to take you. I think it was East Austin is what it was called. I'm not exactly sure. Basically, we're going to take you around the, the black section of Austin. And it was the same thing. <laughs> and I remember there were a few buildings. There was, you know, there was actually kind of grumbling. I heard from the the crowd. It was like, oh, we're not really seeing any buildings here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was, i'm like doesn't this tell you something though like isn't right. that can we take this as a learning experience not just like where's the beautiful building or you know i'm supposed to be looking at or where's where's the tiny little you right. know shack or sh- shotgun house it's like it's not there and there's a reason
2: mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah and i think the identity that's created between expecting to interact with the built environment that is beautifully maintained and bustling versus something that is run down and leftovers i think that has a psychological impact on the people interacting with the spaces certainly well and it's well it's different depending on who we're talking about that's very true i like i
3: said i just i was taken aback by kind of the absence and that spoke volumes to me and other people were like i'm not seeing buildings where are the buildings right, right <laughs> i'm like right. <laughs> "Don't you understand
2: what right. we're not seeing and why, <laughs> right? And I'm like, and, the, and they don't like that's the link that's missing and the need that's that's why we have to be more explicit about it so that they can actually see it. And so one of the things I love that I'm one of your one of your friends that you text when you're in DC. I'm like, yes, I'm on the list. <laughs> and so I, I say that because you are a world traveler, and I love hearing about the different stories and different ways that you're interacting with different places all over the globe. Um, what are some of the places that are top of mind from some of your recent travels and how they've interacted with heritage and just how you've experienced being a Black person or a Black woman in other countries?
3: I'll take a domestic right quick and then we're going to go international. But it's funny because a friend of mine asked me if you could live anywhere in the United States, where would you live? And I thought long and hard. And I was like, mm. in fact, you know, I guess money wasn't considered a factor. And I said I would split my time between D.C. and New Orleans. And nice. they were like, I'd go to Portland. And this is a, a white male who I was speaking with. And I was like, see, <laughs> I wouldn't go to Portland. Okay. See, that's right. the difference between our lived experiences. Yes. I would, I would be splitting my time between D.C. and New Orleans, period. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that, that speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, it was San Francisco. But I'm like, Yee. so, you know, internationally, God, I, so I did the trip with the, Society of Architectural Historians, again, I'm saying this, it was the H. Allen Brooks Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And I I need to know, so I was like, who's H. Allen Brooks anyways? He was an architectural historian and he was the dude who coined the term the prairie style. Oh, interesting. That's one of his many contributions. I was like, well, his contribution was funding that trip. But besides that, (laughs) (laughs) he was like the foremost scholar of Frank Lloyd Wright. So I chose to go to countries in three different regions, the Americas, Africa, and Asia, because I wanted that non-Western experience. And, you know, you've heard this before, it's like, okay, well, every place I went had been colonized. So I was like, well, okay, so I'm going to look at the indigenous Mayan architecture and also look at the Spanish colonial and like the new modern Mexican state. Like I'll I'll look at it all. Okay, great. Mm. Oh, man. But in terms of places, I loved Guatemala. Really? I mean, if you talk to my kids, she will be like, oh, I like Guatemala. And like, <laughs> yes. And if I could pick up and go right now, it was the land of eternal spring. It was the perfect climate. Oh. Um, gorgeous mountains, although some active volcanoes. That was a concern. Indeed. Um, <laughs> I do speak Espanol. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, I was in places where there were lots of indigenous languages, too. So, you know, if you got a little bit outside of the city, folks were speaking in their native tongue. And I was like, okay, I do not know. But Antigua, Guatemala was the first city I stayed in when I went to Guatemala. And I was like, I might not ever
2: leave. (laughs) So was it just the or what was it about the city?
3: It wasn't too big. It was mm-hmm. small. It was, it is pretty touristy, but I do love ruins. I don't know. It's just, I'm, yeah. I'm one of those people. <laughs> so there were, there were ruins from various earthquakes related to the volcanic activity. And it's like these gorgeous old Spanish missions mm-hmm. that you can get lost in for days. And it's just, you know, it's the, the building has been peeled back and it's the bones and the structure and it's, it's, so picturesque to be honest (laughs) right wonderful food kind people I was there for a month and I just got to know folks and they were like oh here she comes she's gonna order this right she's gonna sit in that corner (laughs) (laughs) it was I I really did love it there were I mean there's problems everywhere there there was the issue of poverty and, and in fact You know, indigenous peoples who did not speak Spanish had a harder time tapping into that local tourist economy. Oh, interesting. Um, You know, they grew a lot of coffee there, Mm -hmm. a lot of coffee plantations and just what it coffee plantations. Right. So it's like. You know, it's troubling in that aspect. And I will say that that was something that really bothered me is that knowing that people, I mean, people did live in extreme poverty outside of the city. And it was just, it was one of those things that, quite frankly, I noticed in most places I went, I mean, poverty is a worldwide issue.
2: Right. And I mean, in terms of the um, the um indigenous cultures, did you have, like, for instance, I know in Canada, some of the indigenous cultures, the way that they want to preserve their artifacts is that they actually want the artifacts to return to the earth as opposed Mm -hmm. to like encapsulating them in a museum or any other sort of way that keeps the object more tangible. Mm -hmm. Did you run into any of way of preservation than what we do in the States with some of the indigenous indigenous trips or tribes? I didn't
3: because you know, most of the museums I visited and everything, those were like Spanish language, English, English language, not really a lot of dialogue oh. that way. And so that was really interesting. Uh, one of the things that was kind of a major cultural product of indigenous peoples in Guatemala was their weaving. And so, you know, I saw a ton of different like woven tapestries, outfits, mm-hmm. there were museums dedicated to that and that that's really interesting because it's a kind of tradition and cultural product that can be handed down and is still active right and that like that was something that i will say indigenous women in particular obviously benefited from this is kind of promotion of their the textiles Mm -hmm. um but when it comes to like you've got my ancestors statuary in the museum I didn't really
2: have a lot of conversations around that gotcha what about when you went to Africa how was or what countries did you go to and how was that experience so a long long
3: time ago I went to Egypt that was the first country I went to in Africa because I was like I gotta go see the pyramids. right That's what I need to go do in life <laughs> so this time I wanted to do sub-Saharan Africa so I went to Ghana because I was like maybe I can find my ancestors and mm-hmm. I went to Ethiopia because I wanted to see architecture from a different region and also like I thought it was big of enough of a contrast mm-hmm. knowing that Africa is a humongous continent with like a ton of countries so yeah we we had a little pre-discussion about this Going to Ghana, I actually revisited some of my blog posts like right before I got there. And I was like, I'm going to the motherland. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I, I hadn't had my ancestry DNA test, and that's highly controversial, but I, I have done that. But I knew I was like, enslaved Africans came from West and Central mm-hmm. Africa. So, like, I know I have roots somewhere around here. And Ghana is big on that. They're big on the return, right? The year of the return come back, invest in us, live amongst us. This is home. Uh, But obviously, you know, when I got there, I was in Accra right around the time that Ebola was breaking out. So I I didn't actually get to stay very long. Okay, There was no Ebola in Ghana, but Mm -hmm. there was Ebola all around Ghana. And, you know, the people I talked to and I did, I talked to a former mayor that was crazy. I got in touch with the folks from the Yale Club of Ghana. There's a Yale Club of Ghana? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. There was a Yale Club of Mexico too, and it was actually based in Mexico City. So I I met up with a couple of those folks. But the Yale Club of Ghana turned out to be a gold mine. Wow. And the leader of that, his name was Kofi O'Kansi. He actually passed away almost a year ago now. But um man, he just plugged me into something. It was really insane. He was like, Oh, you like architecture and design? Here, let's go meet my buddy Joe Addo for some for some yogurt. Oh, you oh, you want to hear about urbanism and a crime? Let's go meet with the former mayor. Maybe wow. he can have some. You know? That's was amazing. Like, oh. Yeah, it was crazy. It was absolutely insane. And, you know, for folks who were in these kinds of architecture and urbanism conversations with me, like they were definitely the types of folks who we're on the welcome committee for Ghana. Basically, they're like, this is my beautiful country. You mm-hmm. are a sister. This is your beautiful country, too. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you like the things I like? We're going to talk about preservation and heritage and all these things. But in some cases, you know, I'm, I wander around by myself with my camera, and I'm looking real conspicuous, and people just know. Look at me, and they'd be like, oh, Bruni! Oh, what is that? That means white person. That doesn't make- So... so and it was funny, in the, in Ethiopia, the term was pharengy. Mm-hmm. So they both really mean foreigner, mm-hmm. like stranger, person, not from here. But the connotations is basically white person. And I had someone, some woman I did not know, walk up to me and she was like, you want to know why we call you O'Bruni? Mm-hmm. She was like, because you're more Western than African. And I was like, yep. e- that's true. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. I, was, I was offended though. I was, but it's because the word has so many different meanings. It mm-hmm. truly means foreigner, but foreigner also equates to white person. Because, like, if you're a black person, you're technically not foreign, right? You're not a right. colon, uh, colonist or anything like that. But black people coming back who, you know, family have been in the States for 400 years, right? You are a foreigner. You walk like a foreigner, you talk like a foreigner, you dress like a foreigner. And quite frankly, we even move like a foreigner. Right.
2: I'm not surprised. I remember the first time you told that story, I was blown away by that mainly from a, clearly you are not a white person by American standards. (laughs) But knowing that that shifts depending upon where you are in the world was something that was fascinating. And like, I have a lot of friends who are from South Africa and from from Ghana and also Zimbabwe. So I recognize the fact that, African-American means something different to Africans and mm. black means something different. And so just recognizing the semantics of it and what it means. And so it's the frustration and the placelessness that I'm assuming you felt in that because to be in yeah. Africa and to have Africans tell you you're a foreigner, which granted you are because you know, you're, you're American, but the fact that in America it's the, Oh, go back to Africa and the trying to other us, but it's like America is home that's it truly is it's home so it's been home. that dichotomy is interesting <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah i will say this is this is wrong of me to say but i'm gonna say it anyways my dad had actually gone to west africa back in the early 70s because he, he he went to brown and he was having this sort of like breakdown mm-hmm. because they were my parents were part of the first class of blacks to truly integrate brown mm-hmm. and so he was like i need to go I'm going to go to Africa, and we'll see if I come back. Yep. My grandma yep. was always like, I was afraid your daddy wasn't going to go back to school. <laughs> but he had gone to Ghana as well, and he said that he was called Obruni there in the 70s. It's so funny because he told me this before I went, and I was like, eh, hey, this mm-hmm. is very colorist of me to say, but my father is very light. Okay. So I was like, it's because you look like Tom Joyner, that's why they call him that. <laughs> and i get there and i was like oh okay they just call us okay it's all we're all foreign got you (laughs) so that
1: was
2: really Mm mind-boggling so then when you kept on your travels and got to asia which countries did you go to there
3: i went to india
2: Mm -hmm. and i went
3: to vietnam i had already been through the university of virginia to china because China, like, that was the first country in Asia I had ever visited. And it was actually the first country in all of the countries I've been to that I visited twice. <laughs> like, outside of the U.S. Nice. Um, so, I was like, no, China, i been there. Been to Korea, because my, my brother lived in Korea, and I had visited there. India was hard. Yeah. And, I mean, first of all, it's a huge country. Mm-hmm. Super populous, obviously. Mm-hmm. What parts were you Super in? diverse. I started in Mumbai. Then I went to Goa, which is like a beach
2: resort place,
3: nice so I was kind of like beach resort. But it's also this province or the state they call it the state, that the Portuguese had colonized. So there's like Portuguese oh. design churches in Goa, India, huh? because so the Portuguese were everywhere, right? <laughs> so that was very cool. I was like, this is cool and weird. That's like super Catholic. Mumbai, Goa. I went to this town called Aurangabad. Mm-hmm. and it's not really known for its architecture but it's close to two ancient cave sites Ajanta and a cave so i took day trips to they were buddhist hindu they had like a whole mixture of different kind of religious monasteries basically that were built into the sides of these mountains like huh. it was cool i went to delhi that was insane yeah. and i I had intended to stay there longer, but I was like, "I'm just gonna stay here for ten days because it's highly polluted. I was like walking around these beautiful UNESCO World Heritage sites, and there was like black muck coming out of my eyes, my eyes were watering, when I blew my nose I was just like, i gotta get out of here this is This is like absolutely insane pollution mm-hmm. and very aggressive men. The men were very aggressive in Ethiopia. They were very aggressive in India. And I was proud of myself most of the time. So that was highly problematic. I could not shake them. Delhi obviously I'm to go see the Taj Mahal because yeah, it's more gorgeous in real life.
2: Agreed. Um, Agreed. Like, oh I've been (laughs) to here girl, I know. Yeah. Yeah. We went um yeah, we so we stayed in New Delhi for a friend's wedding and then went to um Agra for to go see Taj Mahal, then we saw Taj Mahal, Baby Taj, and also the Red Fort. Yes, sorry, yes. So
3: you know, you know all about the. Yeah, I was like, I got you out of here. Ooh, yes, and then I went to Jaipur and Udaipur. So I-, I hopped all around. Those are on my list. A
2: lot. Oh my gosh, Jaipur! Oh,
3: I liked Udaipur better. It's a little bit smaller, and that is crazy. Okay, good to know. Um, I went to all these places, and then when I talked to people from India, they're like, But you did not go. I'm like, Yo, like, you did not go here, and you did not go. You didn't go to Kolkata, and you didn't go to Chandigarh, and you didn't go. I'm like, Right, you didn't go to Varanasi. I'm like, Yo, India is huge. I did the best I could, (laughs) right? (laughs) Under the circumstances, okay,
2: (laughs) exactly. And so, then continuing uh, east, what what other Asian countries did you hit?
3: Vietnam. Vietnam and Guatemala were my favorite countries, and Ghana comes in third.
2: Okay. All right. And then, so let's talk a little bit about your time in Vietnam. I
3: loved Vietnam. I truly did. And I say this also knowing that I can enjoy it as a tourist, where other people don't have the kind of freedom I have. And quite frankly, I started in Ho Chi Minh City, which they also still call Saigon. Like, I was in Mumbai, but Folks there still call it Bombay, Ho Chi Minh City, but folks there still call it Saigon, which tells you a whole lot about since of place there. But right. um I, you know, stayed in a hostel. I met some wonderful people. I got to, you know, run around the city with folks who actually speak Vietnamese. So then I was like, okay, yeah, we go into the places. This is cool. Right. But like I said, I know that I'm privileged in that way because when I was in. Ho Chi Minh City, and said I was going to go to Hanoi and Hui, all the H's, Hoi An, Halong Bay. People were like, I've never been there. And I realized that people don't travel. I mean, most of the countries I went to, people did not travel to all the places that I had gone. Uh-huh. Um, I think even more so, one, because of socioeconomic issues, but two, because North and South are still North and South, even though they're united. Hmm. Um, so people are like, we want to ha- Hanoi? Oh, okay. So that was really interesting to have conversations with people and know that I've been to more cities in their country than they have. But I mean, obviously, they know their country way better than me.
2: I know that um, you had mentioned that your uncle had an impact on how you experienced Vietnam. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So I'm not going to lie. Part of the reason why I went to Vietnam is because I knew I liked the food. And also, it just wasn't the normal place that you would go to study architecture, right? You right. might go to Japan. You will go to China. Mm-hmm. India, yes. I was like Vietnam's a little bit off the beaten path in this way, and also I want to understand the, re- the like the Vietnam USA relations because I just I thought that was really something I could dig into. And you know, before I left, I was talking to one of my uncles who lived in Louisiana. He was my he and my aunt were my only relatives in Louisiana when I lived there, so I saw them a lot. Mm-hmm. He was a retired command sergeant major for the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Joseph Mitchell. He did recently pass away Sunday evening. So I've I've been struggling. Yeah, Yeah, I've been struggling. I was like, my uncle Mitch. Um, He made the military his career. And so, yeah, he was in Vietnam. He was in Korea. He was stationed in Germany. He was stationed in Italy. And he actually taught at West Point, too. He was a field artillery instructor. Wow. He was trying to get me to teach it. Well, you know they have good jobs at West Point. I was like, <laughs> I'm not teaching at West Point. That's what I'm not gonna do. Okay. <laughs> they need someone to teach the subject. I'm like, nope, I, I'm good. That's like way too straight for my Right. so he did. He was truly, you know, a, a military man down to the core. But you know, he was he was kind of intimidating that way. But the more I got to know him, I was like, Oh, you're just you're a softie. So we could talk about anything. And we about all sorts of stuff, politics, love, relationships, you know, just an older dude trying to give me some wisdom. Mm-hmm. The one thing we could not talk about was Vietnam. Really? He would absolutely, you know, not entertain any of my questions. He would just always curve me, like, no, we could talk about anything, girl, I'm talking about, we could talk about anything. I was not afraid to talk to my uncle about anything. So, like,
2: yeah, any but you know, anything in Vietnam, he would shut it down. Absolutely. Did he ever okay. say why, or like what was behind that, or did he just was he just a master at curving it and left it at that? He, no, he was like, I, I don't want to talk about that.
3: Like, I'm not going to talk about that. And I was like, okay. All right. Wow. So then, I so you know that heightens the curiosity. Like, oh,
2: mm-hmm, of <laughs> course. Tell me, I can't do something. <laughs> I want to do it. <laughs>
3: Yeah. So, you know, when I get there, he knew I was going. He did not approve of that decision. I said, Uncle Mitch, it's a different place, though. Like, it's not the same place that you were. In. He was in the 82nd Airborne, and he also served in the 101st Airborne. And because he would not tell me anything, I was I was doing research. I was like, where were they? What battles were they in? Right, right. Were they in the Battle of Quay? Like, he's not going to tell me I'm going to figure it out because I'm a historian. Right. And I, I brought those thoughts with me. And, you know, going to these different places, I went to the Coochie Tunnels, which is where, you know, that intricate underground system where the guerrilla warfare was enacted upon American soldiers. Folks had like these crazy forest systems so they can hide and, and do just kind of unconventional tactics. Like I mean, it was some crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I went to what they call in Ho Chi Minh City, a.k.a. Saigon, the War Remnants Museum. And it's rough. I mean, it's an absolutely hard look at the very long history of what they call in Vietnam the American War, not the Vietnam War. It is the American War. Right. And I was like, oh, snap.
2: Yeah, that shifts the frame of that for sure.
3: And you go through the levels. I think there are four or five levels. And it it gives this long history about French colonization and then pulling out and then you know, like all these various reasons and, you know, people will say, oh, it's a propaganda museum. I said, well, say what you will. There there's certain undisputable facts. Mm-hmm. And those facts were often portrayed in the form of photographs. We, there are some absolutely harrowing types of photographs that will stay with you basically for the rest of your life. And it's, it's a hard place to go to, but it's necessary. I definitely mm-hmm. felt like it was necessary. And one of the things that I saw when I was there, they actually had an exhibition on photography. And I was like, cool. It was called Requiem. And it's like all these international photographers coming to document the Vietnam War. And something that I know you probably picked up on is that I'm looking at these photographs and there are all these Black American men in them. Hmm. And I just, I was like taken aback. All the other things that I was processing and absorbing,
2: I was like, Mm -hmm. that's my Uncle Mitch in there. And I feel like those photos of Black soldiers aren't something that's necessarily in American history books. mm -mm. I
3: was taking pictures of pictures. I was like, this is amazing. This is wild. You know, then I was trying to do research about, you know, how many Black men did serve in Vietnam. And just like, what were the proportions in terms of people who got killed and things like that? And, you know, folks were on the front line. The grunt and I was just like, "Wow, Black American history is so tied up in Vietnam." I was like, "Here we are. We are here in this museum, represented." I just really was thinking about my uncle and all the different men that he served with, and like reasons why he would never. I'm I'm telling you, our lines of communication were always open, but he would never speak on that. One thing I'll also say is that you know Spike Lee's movie Five Bloods came out a couple months ago. You know, Spike Lee—he does his thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's also quite unconventional, right? Certain in certain ways, he's very like he has his his particular stick. But um, I watched it, you know, because I—it was that same kind of curiosity. It was about Vietnam veterans who go back. Five black men—they call themselves the Five Bloods. Um, one of them had died in action, and they were going to go back and like retrieve his remains and some other mysterious thing. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the
2: movie? I haven't. It's, don't worry. I I will though. It's on my list for the weekend.
3: Okay. And the things that I saw in that movie made so much sense to me. And people were like, oh, that's not realistic. They're not going to go back to Vietnam. They're not going to. But they do. They go back to reconcile that past and whatever kind of demons that haunt them. Mm -hmm. And it was five Black, men. And that was what was so important to me. And again, yes, I was thinking about my uncle during this time and just how much Vietnam had changed, but how much of Black America's history is in Vietnam.
2: That's definitely fascinating because that's definitely not a piece of Black history that is often thought of. Like, typically for Black history, it's the narrative is often the 1960s, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. very domestic, not really focusing on the contributions In the military and other parts of the world. And so to hear that so much is in Vietnam, that is fascinating.
3: One thing that I realized as I was traveling the world is how much impact Black America has had on various countries. When I was in Mexico, for instance, I went to this area in the northern part of Mexico City called Tlatelolco. And it's a really amazing site. There was an old, let's just say, an old indigenous temple there. The Spanish came tore that down, put their cathedral on top of that okay Later on in that same area it was the site of an urban renewal project and major public housing some of the largest public housing complex in the Americas. what <laughs> you blow my mind right now <laughs> My what? mind was blown as well and it was also the site of a major massacre in 1968 because the people in the public housing and students who were part of the student movement were rising up against the the modern Mexican state government in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And part of what they were inspired by was the civil rights movement. Huh. And the state clamped down on them and really, you know, just went to town on, on these young activists. So there's a museum there that literally talks about all these different histories, indigenous, Spanish colonial, modern, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And there's also a whole section, well, actually a whole separate museum on 1968 in local. Mm-hmm. And in that exhibit, you see Malcolm X, you see Martin Luther King, you see the activists at the Olympics, because this is right before the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. So you have the brothers doing the Black Power Salute. It's in the museum. And I was like, oh, like it just brings it all the way back around. Like the struggles of Black America are known around the world. Various people now obviously have feelings about Black Americans Mm -hmm. in our history. But what was happening in the States reverberated and connected with these larger kind of movements. And yeah, my jaw dropped when I was in Mexico city and went in there and I was like, Malcolm X is on the wall <laughs> like, <laughs> as a part of this larger exhibition to give context to the student movement. Right. What? Oh my gosh. Huh. Um, so it would help me again. Right. I'm outside of the States, but I'm able to understand black history from an international lens and see us represented and know just how impactful and important those movements were. I guess that's a way to bring it back It's like, even when I'm out, I can still understand America and the black experience
2: even better. Mm-hmm. That's really comforting to know that that narrative and that story is impactful in other parts of the world. Or when I think about black history, I don't typically think of it at the international level. So that's really interesting and helpful to keep that in context.
3: I, I will say there was a woman named Leslie Moody Castro. Who was kind of an independent curator in Mexico City who brought the site to my attention? We mm-hmm. had mutual friends, and she was like, Oh, if you're interested in these things, then I'm gonna need you to go check out this place. And I was like, What did she talk? Like, I couldn't understand. I was like, What's she talk about? Right. Ancient ruins, Spanish colonial, public housing. I'm like, what is right. she talking about? <laughs> <So> <laughs> I went, and I was like, Whoa!
2: <laughs> right. To think of like the palimpsest of all the different things on top of each other in that space. That's fascinating for me your ability to to be a black American woman traveling around the world, understanding the historical context and being able to make those connections, I think is fascinating and amazing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for having me
3: i It's good to think back It's been five years now and one day I will write a book
2: yes yeah, good but, um, it's a part of my life i'm like i can't believe I did that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Quiet Secrets, which is available on Amazon just about everywhere music is sold.
1: Quiet morning.